I'm what you might call very good at hide-and-seek. And since we got Xfinity, we have Wi-Fi all over the house. Even in my super-secret hiding spots. So I can kill time in here by streaming my favorite- Ha! Found ya. How? You left to find my tablet on. Get wall-to-wall Wi-Fi on the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hello and welcome back to the Ask Science podcast. I'm your guest host, Henry G. This is episode five of my five-part series adapted from my new book, A Very Short History of Life on Earth. Life's Last Bow On the largest scale, the tale of life on Earth is governed by just two things. One of them is a slow decline in the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. The other is the steady increase in the brightness of the sun. Why is carbon dioxide becoming so scarce? In a word, weathering. New rock thrust up to become mountains is swiftly eroded. Erosion sucks carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. The rocks are ground to dust, which is eventually buried on the sea floor. In the earliest days of the Earth, the entire surface of the planet was covered with ocean. There was little or no land to erode. Over time, however, the proportion of land has increased, and with it, the potential for weathering. Slowly, the amount of carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere has increased, relative to the rate of its replenishment through, say, volcanic eruptions. One of life's first challenges occurred during the Great Oxidation event between 2.1 and 2.4 billion years ago. A spike in tectonic activity led to a sharp increase in the burial of carbon. The world no longer benefiting from the greenhouse effect, was tipped into an ice age that lasted 300 million years, the first and greatest Snowball Earth episode. The severity was exacerbated by the fact that the sun produced less heat than it does nowadays. Life responded by an increase in complexity. Individual bacteria living in loose associations pooled their resources, each individual concentrating on the one aspect of life it did best. The result was the eukaryotic cell. Life's next major challenge came around 825 million years ago with the breakup of the supercontinent Rodinia, more weathering, and another Snowball Earth episode, although not as severe as the first. Although there was more land to erode, the sun was that much hotter. In response, eukaryote cells clubbed together to create multicellular creatures. 
the first animals evolved. Multicellularity allowed organisms to become larger, move faster, move further, and exploit more resources in a way that individual eukaryotic cells never could. In a similar way, life is preparing for the next step change in complex evolution. As bacteria combined to create eukaryotes, as these combined to create multicellular animals, plants and fungi, so these organisms will combine to produce, in the last ages of life on Earth, a whole new kind of organism of a power and efficiency we can hardly imagine. The seeds were sown long ago. Not long after plants first made landfall, they found that life was much easier when they formed close associations with underground fungi called mycorrhizae, which would attach themselves to the roots of the plants. Plants would supply the fungi with nutrients from photosynthesis. The fungi would dig deep into the ground for trace minerals in exchange. Today, most land plants have associations with mycorrhizae and indeed could not survive without them. When you next walk in the woods, consider that in the ground beneath your feet, the mycorrhizae of different plants have linked up to exchange nutrients, forming a wood-wide web that regulates the growth of the entire forest. The forest, with all its trees and mycorrhizae, is a single superorganism. Much later, as the age of the dinosaurs was nearing its apogee, the world of plants underwent a quiet revolution. This was the evolution of flowers. Flowers actively attract pollinators, rather than relying for their fertilization on wind and weather and chance. It was probably no coincidence, therefore, that the evolution of flowers occurred at the same time as a dramatic increase in pollinating insects. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Some plants and their pollinators have such close associations that they cannot survive without the other. Figs, for example, cannot reproduce without their attendant fig wasps, which have built their lives around the plant. What we think of as the fruits of the fig are actually habitats created by and for the wasps. Many ants, bees and wasps have been evolving into a new and more integrated state, separately from their associations with plants. Many congregate into colonies in which individuals are specialised for specific tasks, such as guarding or foraging. Significantly, reproduction is vested in a single individual, the queen. 
Just as in a multicellular organism, the business of reproduction is concentrated in a distinct population of cells. Such colonies are superorganisms. As time passes and carbon dioxide for photosynthesis becomes scarcer, associations like this will become more common. Individual organisms will become smaller and use resources more efficiently by forming parts of much larger social superorganisms. At the same time, plants will rely on animals to supply them with carbon dioxide and to pollinate them. Plants with less close associations will eventually be starved out. Fig wasps are already greatly changed in their shape and behaviour from their more free-wheeling relatives. This change will accelerate until the insects become simply vehicles to mediate fertilisation and provide carbon dioxide. In the end, they will become little more than microscopic organs within the plant, in the same way that the mitochondria within our cells were once free-living bacteria. The reproduction of the insects will become completely synchronous with that of the plant. They will have become as one. The plants, too, will have changed. They will, perhaps, resemble fungi, with most of their bodies underground, expanded into bloated hollow caverns in which their carbon dioxide-producing insect partners, now more like microscopic worms or even amoeboid-like cells, will live their entire lives, devoted to assisting the fertilisation of tiny, internally produced flowers. Only occasionally will a plant send photosynthetic tissue above the ground, but with less carbon dioxide to be gathered and withered by the increasing heat of the sun, occasionally will become rarely, which will become hardly ever. Some plants, though, will send tiny flowers above the ground to release and gather pollen in the wind, to maintain genetic diversity and, perhaps, as signals, a kind of semaphore, to say that all is not yet lost. And still, the earth moves. 250 million years from now, the continents will once again have converged into a supercontinent, the greatest yet. Much like Pangaea, it will lie across the equator. It will show few signs of life. In the ocean, life will be simpler and concentrated in the deep sea. The land will appear completely lifeless. This will be an illusion. There will still be life, but one would have to dig for it a long, long way. Deep underground live bacteria that mine minerals eking out a meagre existence from the energy obtained by converting them from one form to another. In between the cracks, these bacteria are preyed on by a range of tiny creatures, such as microscopic worms. Life in the deep biosphere proceeds so lazily as to be hardly distinguishable from death. The bacteria grow very slowly, divide rarely, and can live for millennia. 
as the world warms and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere becomes ever scarcer, life in the depths will speed up. The heat itself will drive it, and so will the invasion from above of a new kind of organism, a composite of what were, in the distant past, creatures called fungi, plants, and animals, but which are the very last holdouts of life near the surface of the planet. These superorganisms will put the slow-moving bacteria of the deep to work, offering safe harbour in return for energy and nutrients, for photosynthesis is now a thing of the past. The fungal-like threads of the superorganisms will ramify through the Earth's crust, ever in search of more sustenance, until, one day, late in the Earth's evening, the threads of all the superorganisms will have met and fused. Life will have gathered together into one single living entity, defiant against the dying of the light. In the planet's youth, continental drift was fuelled by the radioactive decay of elements such as uranium, forged in the final seconds of a supernova, and which fled to the planet's centre when it formed so long ago. These elements have almost all gone. The supercontinent that converges some 800 million years in the future will be the greatest in the planet's history. It will also be its last. For the continents, whose restless shifting has been the fuel for life, and so often its nemesis, will have finally ground to a halt. There will be no life on the surface. Even deep underground, life is breathing its last. The last life in the sea, converging around hydrothermal vents, will be starved to death as the mineral-rich smokers, once driven by plate tectonics, sputter and die. In a billion years or so, life on Earth, which has so adroitly turned every challenge to its existence into an opportunity to flourish, will have, finally, expired. That's all for this episode of Ask Science, and it's the end of my time as guest host. If you enjoyed these five episodes, you can learn a lot more about Earth's history in my new book, a very short history of life on Earth. You can click the link in the episode description or find the book wherever books or audiobooks are sold. Thanks for listening. <laughs>